there is one word that all trauma-informed therapists say, and that word, my friends, is attachment. And when we say the word attachment to each other in consultation, to our clients, what are we talking about? When we read about attachment in the literature, what are we actually saying? And how do we take that information and know what to do with it clinically? Now, y'all know that when I have more questions than answers, I call a friend for help. And today we have called in Dr. Mara Tesler-Stein to be back on the podcast with us to help us understand more about attachment, bonding, and attunement. Let's dive in. Back together again. I'm here today with Mara Tesler-Stein. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I had such a blast with you last time. For inviting me. I'm really excited to talk about this stuff with you. Yes. So we were we were chatting earlier. So we're we're hoping to <laughs> talk about attachment today, but but I get the sense that what where our hearts are with this is to really help people understand things that I think maybe are confusing about attachment. Like what does that word mean? How do we treat people when it comes to attachment-related disorders? And I was getting excited with you as I saw you preparing for this course that you're doing. Um, I, I was getting excited with you on social media because you were noticing some things in the literature that were making your blood boil, um, some kind of misinterpretation. So I'm excited we're going to talk about that today. And I would love to just come into the conversation with you as really a beginner's mind, learner's <laughs> position, because you have been thinking about this, researching this, and I'm just excited that we get to hear from you today about what you're finding out. And I'm, I, you know, and I also am um, continuing to learn, continuing to delve deeper and deeper with more nuance um, into this area. And this area in particular, I think is so foundational to everything that we do and everything that we are. Mm. Um, and as I, I was telling you at some point, you know, I started off my my professional career as a child psychologist. So for me, the developmental lens and the attachment lens is baked in. Mm -hmm. I am always, no matter the age of the person that I'm working with, always thinking about birth and early years. What was the nature of that dance between baby you and the people who took care of you? Yep. Um, and so for me, when, you know, as my career progressed and I got into perinatal mental health, which really felt like the natural, a natural segue. And I told you the story the first time that we talked about how my own life experience brought me into perinatal mental health. Um, that attachment lens was really, really natural in working with parents after a perinatal crisis, during and after a perinatal crisis. Um, because I also had then walked that walk you know, bed rest and, and the NICU. And even then, um, not surprisingly, just the assumptions that were that are made about parents, that are made about the nature of the relationship between parents and, and babies mm. in newborn intensive care and the and afterwards is that's always baffled me mm. um, and sometimes aggravated me. And then when I found um, my community of parents of premature babies, whose babies are now all grown up, mm. uh, mine included. The ones who, who survived, that is, um, most of them, but not all. We all had sort of similar kinds of conversations about like, boy, we're really trying to explain something. We're trying to understand something. We're trying to share our perspective. And, it, and it's difficult to get that across. And then so I brought that into my work as a clinician, that awareness 
of what what it means to be the parent bringing your child in. Mm. Um, remember, I, I worked for a really long time with kids and adolescents and really sort of trying to see, see through the parents' eyes. And so all that to say, as I'm, as I'm now getting prepared for um, teaching a three-day workshop uh, together with Debbie Davis, who's my co-author and we call basically my co-author and partner in crime. Uh, That's kind of our tagline for each other. Um, <laughs> we're teaching a three-day course um, for clinicians who work with families who have at any point in time crossed the doors of newborn intensive care for any reason with their baby, whether they had a premature baby, whether they had a baby who needed newborn intensive care for any reason and for any length of time. And it could be that this happened a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, um, but that to whatever degree that that's still reverberating. Um, and it does reverberate. So I'm preparing for this workshop, getting on, getting a whole bunch of you know, big piles of literature. And I'm, like, I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, I think I have 600 articles in my, in my pages file for this, for this workshop. So starting to read the attachment literature and I keep seeing this conflation of first of all an assumption that there's going to be attachment difficulties when you have a baby in newborn intensive care hmm. now attachment refers to the experience of the child the experience of the child in relation to the caregiver mm-hmm. usually a parent doesn't have to be a parent Certainly doesn't have to be a mother, yep. any loved one, caregiver, with the, the experience of that child with regard to security yep. and safety. Can I count on you when I fall down and bang my knee? Can I turn to you and and are can I depend on you to respond to me? in a nurturing way, in a relatively predictable way, in a soothing way, in a, in a validating and responsive way, in a way that isn't scary, yep. in a way that isn't dismissive. Yeah. So right off the bat, we're talking about attachment. We're actually talking about the, the dependent partner's experience of the one they're supposed to be able to depend on. Now, certainly... We, as children, developed attachment patterns based on our experience, experiences rather with our parents, because it have one sort of attachment pattern with one parent, a different sort of attachment parent a pattern with a different parent, depending on those um, patterns of experiences and the templates that get laid down as a result of those experiences. And so certainly as a new mom in the NICU, mm. of course, I brought, and I'll, I'll, we all would, and we all do bring those that attachment history into the relationship with our new babies yes but the but the experience of the parent toward the baby is actually referred to as bonding Hmm. refers to the the protective urges the loving urges the nurturing urges that a parent has towards the baby this is my baby Hmm. this is this baby is the one i i will take care of in, in all in all sorts of ways. And I love that you're talking about both sides of the experience, right? Because you and I are both twin moms, right? We've had to figure out how to attach to both kids, and like track that. And I love that there is a consideration and a voice for the parent's experience and then also for the child's experience. Absolutely. And, and so I think that what one of the things that's happened is that 
we're using attachment in a way that confuses confuses it and makes it too easy to pathologize in ways that are pathologizing is not often not helpful, but it, it isn't giving us good information. So for example, in the literature over and over again, as I'm reading, what I see is a conflation of parental fear mm. and looking at their, let's say, thousand gram, gram newborn baby, really tiny baby, fear with lack of attachment. Hmm. So first, first of all, that baby isn't attaching to anybody right now. That baby is, is trying to, to live. Yeah, to grow. And a baby later, yes. you know. Now there, you may see some responsiveness to parental voice. It's quite remarkable. Even you know, even a baby who's born, you know, fifteen weeks early, rec- will recognize can recognize the voice of the parent. Will prefer it, right? So those are you know some of the early ingredients, right? But at this point, and 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 over time, you know, we would want to see that you know that baby can respond to. To holding into touch and something we see with kangaroo care. Mm. Like baby skin to skin on the parent and that baby regulates and they co-regulate. So there, I, I'm not, I don't mean to suggest that attachment functions aren't starting in a really, really nascent way with this very premature baby, but it's very, very, you know, grains of sand because we're talking about a, a critically ill newborn. However, the bonding is really what the nurses and doctors and, and whoever else may be around watching is looking at. Mm-hmm. Because the concern seems to be, will this parent attach to their baby? <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you <laughs> that most of the time they are already attached before that baby was born, they're already bonded, I should say. Mm-hmm. Now, their attachment pattern in terms of maybe anxieties about whether their baby will let them back one day, will they be good enough? Some of those fears can certainly get mixed in, but it's so important for us to be more incisive and specific about what we're actually looking at. Yes. Parents' anxiety, parents' fear, about their baby's condition and about whether they can engage in a way that will not hurt their baby, particularly for the, for the person who gave birth, mothers and others, who will say, I already did a bad job. My baby is so early. Look, I'm not so sure that I want to get too close because I don't want to do harm. Wow. urge yes that's bonding mm-hmm. right that's what we would call if we want to open the umbrella a little bit wider that's an attachment function yes mm-hmm. that's protective you know if, if we want to start to talk about attachment in relation to to how parents feel that's protectiveness and i want to be the secure base i want to be the one that they know doesn't hurt them wow well, I'm listening to you and I'm realizing that what you're saying, and I imagine what you'll cover in the in the training um, with Debbie, really, we, we can take what you're saying and we can expand it. 
I mean, through every age, through any age, because I mean, as, as I'm hearing you, you know, I'm just thinking about all the parents with young kids, myself included, that have been parenting through COVID, right? And who have gotten COVID and had to isolate from their kids and are worried about their kids' attachment and like worried about parenting as traumatized people and compartmentalizing that. And I mean, I'm, it's just what you're saying is so applicable to everything. So, so here's some good news. What we know, there's two things that we know pretty clearly from, from the, the massive amounts of research that have been done since John Bowlby uh, first started talking about mm-hmm. attachment, attachment and loss. First of all, we do see that the parents own attachment patterns from their own upbringing is, is generally the best predictor all things considered, of how their child, how their children are going to attach, so that when we as parents do our own work, yes, we are we all, we know this, right? It's a cliche, right? You know, do your own work, put your oxygen mask on first. But actually, the work that we do to help to smooth out the bumps and weave in where there are gaps in the weaving of our own experience of trust and security and dependability and responsiveness and reciprocity and all the kinds of things that we we all want to be able to experience with the people to whom we are attached mm-hmm. and who are attached to us um, as peers um, or to our parents who are not peers. When we do that work, we can then shape the kinds of attachments that our children will have with us. So powerful and so true. <laughs> it's remarkable. It's yep. really, it's quite something. Here's the other piece that I think really speaks to the work we do as clinicians. The function of mentalizing, the function of being able to think about an experience, to tell the story of experience, to have a theory of mind, to be able to imagine how someone else is feeling or what they're thinking. All of this is related to secure attachment. So here we are, for example, in COVID and a parent gets COVID and worries about the separation. The separation is unlikely to be the problem mm-hmm. if there is communication and um, transparency and dialogue in an age-appropriate way mm-hmm. about what's happening. With, with support for the child to be able to tell the story of that time when, mm-hmm. when mommy had to stay in her bedroom all by herself and she got to watch a Yes. <laughs> right? Yes, she right? did. <laughs> I'm sure she did. I'm sure she did. Between naps and coughing fits. Yes. So it's the mentalizing. And so clinically, let's say in, in the NICU, when we can help parents to stabilize their nervous systems enough, and this is where our trauma-focused work is so powerful, to stabilize their nervous systems enough to contain all of the, the overwhelm and all the hyperactivation that's happening in the nervous system so that they can begin to make those connections to tell a story, to begin to put this baby, this unexpected version of this baby, this is not the baby I expected, This is not the birthing I expected. This is not the the newborn period I expected. Um, But to be able to retell, to revise the story 
and to continue to revise the story, to understand the baby whose signals are different than a full-term healthy baby's signals. Mm. If I'm a parent who expects that when I sing to my baby and stroke them, that they're going to start to kind of coo and fall asleep. And instead I'm in the NICU and the, the oxygen saturation drops and all the alarms start to go off. I think if I don't understand my baby doesn't like me. I'm a terrible parent. I just hurt my baby. Mm. What's wrong with me? And maybe even also like, what's wrong with this kid? Mm. Oh no, what am I in for? It could be a whole array, some of which parents are embarrassed even voice. How do I understand this? But as as we, and and hopefully the nursing and medical, the rest of the medical team can help parents to understand baby has such a raw nervous system that we have to do things in these really, really tiny ways and one thing at a time. Hmm. And so the nervous system will continue to develop. The nervous system will continue to mature. Um, but for right now, you can either stroke or walk. You can either talk or touch, right? So that so that then the parent can have that experience and say, I get it. I understand what my baby needs and that's attunement yes so we talk so much about attachment when i think what we really need to be talking about is attunement Mm. and it's much more difficult for parents to be attuned to their preemies simply because we don't speak their language yet yes you know listening to you i have i'm having so much compassion you know, for for your experience, for other moms' experiences in the NICU. And it really feels like this brutal crash course in parenting that we have to do forever, right? To to understand forever when we put things out with our kids, whether it's energetically with our nervous system or with our behaviors or, or touch or words, we get some kind of a response. And then the story we tell ourselves is so powerful, right? Because listening to you with the example of I'm bad, I'm doing it wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Then the baby, then it's it's like the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And also this attunement piece to be able to understand, can I be curious about how what I'm trying as a parent with this kid <laughs> to see if this feels good or this creates a response that that is good you know i'm doing air quotes if you're listening it's such a complex process that you're unpacking and it really is the process of parenting forever <laughs> it absolutely is the process of parenting forever uh, and i will say that i have said so many times that parents of preemies and 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 non-preemies who are in the NICU have to learn in in a heartbeat mm. what most parents get decades to learn mm uncertainty about vulnerability, about risk, about protectiveness so quickly. And and you write so brutally. Yes. Wow. So this topic is important, not just for this population that you'll talk about within your workshop, but also just the application. I'm hearing it and I'm already learning and applying as as you're speaking. Yeah. It's absolutely, I mean, I think about it a lot with um, the experience of parenting across the board when when a child is not who we expected them to be in whatever dimension that may be. 
and and the vulnerability and the uncertainty that comes with that mm-hmm. and the grief that can come with that not not because it could be because of of loss and fear of the future but also just again this isn't what i expected and so that image mm-hmm. you know is mourned and grieved and then now i have the child who, who you are that yeah. could be around disability that could be around um sexual orientation around gender identity can be around strengths and weaknesses you know um medical illness He's so many many pieces mm-hmm. uh, and then of course i think in a, in a more i guess more typical kind of experience of you know the parent who's like they want to be that when they grow up what do they mean how could that be you know, like, that's i think kind yes. of a more typical experience yes right? yep yeah, but that's an experience that I think people can understand because I think it's discussed in clinical trainings, it's discussed in movies and TV shows, and it's more normalized. And I think, and we were chatting about this um, earlier, you know, I shared that one of my kids was recently diagnosed with sensory processing. And so for me as a therapist, to be able to, to realize I didn't learn about attachment with this type of kiddo or this type of person in terms of wiring, I was taught from this more kind of neurotypical lens of like, this is what attachment looks like, feels like, sounds like. And so this attunement piece is so important, right? To get that feedback that, you know, that much touching doesn't feel good. That much noise doesn't feel good. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. This also speaks to this. So this would speak to any, any situation where a child is in any way non-neurotypical, And we see this a lot with premature with premature babies, wow. where the way that their nervous system is wired, just because of the prematurity, and this is not even when there are any neurological sequelae at all. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about kids who have, you know, a measurable sort of brain injury, a bleed, anything like that. Just the prematurity, you know, when, when that nervous system is born, unmyelinated, not completely myelinated, changes the the neural structures changes mm-hmm. brain structure and wiring. Wow. And so so what you may see in thresholds with kids who are, who are preemies or who are sick, right? And had a lot of you know uh stimulation, a lot of assault stimulation mm-hmm. um, very, very early on when their nervous systems weren't prepared for it. When nobody's nervous system in some cases yes. would have really done well with that. Yeah. We need to better understand clinically What's going, so what's going on in the dynamic, in the, in the way that that child turns towards a parent, when that, what it means when that child withdraws. Mm-hmm. So we have to understand, and very often we have to ask the parent, yeah. what does that mean? Or, yeah. you know, talk to me about, you know, about this child. Talk to me about, you know, what you notice when, how does he or she or they um, express a need? How do they show you that they need help? What happens when you try to comfort? Well, I can't do it this way. I need to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And so again, it's about attunement. Yes. And you know, the other, the other piece of the literature, the first, first pile of literature that I was <laughs> ranting about, um, I didn't do it publicly because I, I just <laughs> was so mad and it was, this was not new to me literature, but was so disappointing to see that it hadn't been you know, nobody had come back around and said so actually 
we misunderstood this. So there's this, this concept of the vulnerable child hmm. where the idea is that, that when a child is born early or born, or born ill, has, has illness in, in the early months and years of life, the idea is that parents, some parents, will continue to treat that child as highly vulnerable when they are no longer vulnerable. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Except that for many kids, preemies in particular, there can be an array of really non-diagnosable level kinds of effects Mm. that show up emotionally, behaviorally, in terms of of self-regulation or co-regulation, in terms of rhythmicity, that sort of thing, attention, that may or may not meet thresholds for diagnosis. Mm. But that's what they're looking for in research, right? Because we have a diagnosed disability. Do we have a diagnosed medical problem? No. Okay, child isn't vulnerable. But wow, that parent. Mm. Uh. (laughs) Without I was thinking any, of these gaslighted parents. <laughs> so without consideration, that is it possible that that parent is actually aware of something that your measurement instruments are not picking up on? Not that that parent's vigilance or anxiety or worry caused this problem. Wow. So that's the other pattern that I'm seeing in the literature. Now, I want to be clear. Can it happen that a completely neurotypical, developmentally on track, you know, no disabilities. Kid has a parent who is so traumatized and hypervigilant and so not oriented to the present mm. and to this child that they can't see the child they have. What they see is the child that they were or that they were afraid they were going to be. Mm. Sure. Yep. But we can describe that. We can talk about trauma reaction. We can talk about a dissociative reaction. Right? We can talk about re-experiencing, reacting. Mm-hmm. With trauma lens, we actually have a much more, I think, helpful way to talk about the dynamic in a way that then can help us to help that family. Yes. Yep. Right. So when it does happen, if it does happen, then we can say, what's happening is that this parent can't see the child that is. Mm. But what if they are seeing the child that is, but the researcher, the clinician isn't? Then what? Then the parent stops talking to the clinician. Yep. Yep. Or, yeah, or or they don't, they, they lose trust in themselves of what they're observing. And I mean, there's just, and they take on, I mean, I'm just imagining and remembering, you know, all the phone calls I get as a therapist from parents about their kids at different ages, right? Mm-hmm. And again, this conversation can be applied <laughs> across across time across time because really how do we as the clinician choose to trust the parent who's there all the time observing and experiencing think about how the field still looks at parents with an edge of suspicion and that's and that's the good ones the good clinicians the clinicians who are you know parent centered or family centered or relationship more relationship centered Right, there's still an element of like, how good a reporter are they? I don't know. But let's start off with the assumption that they know more than you do yeah. about their childhood they've lived with for all of these years. Mm-hmm. It can certainly be helpful. And I've worked a lot with parents. 
I mean, what ended up happening is I end up working more with parents than with kids. Yep. Because so much of parents' own history, so much, as I said earlier, shapes kids and their capacity to believe that they can turn to their parents for support, that they can then turn to other adults, other people who they're supposed to be able to depend on, peers and so on. Can I trust you? Yep. And that, and that regulation in the parent, right? I mean, gosh, kids can feel all that people. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. And so, so, you know, working with parents and then working with parents and kids, you know, ultimately many times was, was the way to go uh, with, with, with a lot of the kiddos that I saw. Did my fair share of play therapy as well. Uh, a lot of fan trade therapy. You know, there's 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 a lot of ways, a lot of ways in, a lot of ways to move. And so I guess what I what I'm getting at is that the phenomenon that get described in 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 the literature, that's where I started here. Um, well, sure, we we can see those phenomenon. I just think that we need to be much more curious and much more respectful. Mm-hmm. And also more confident mm-hmm. that the in parents' capacities and where we see something happening that looks problematic, to be curious about that, to get more information about that so that we can better understand, okay, so is this old stuff that's coming forward, right? Is this, is this a, a difficulty in the dance between parent and child? Say baby, even in the NICU or after the NICU, or is there something else going on here that may be related to both of those things or to something else entirely? Uh, but but the idea that the that the capacity for bonding and the capacity for attachment, just like our capacity to heal that we talk about in EMDR therapy, that's innate. Yes, that's how we're wired. We are born with with a, an attachment system. And with a caregiving system, neurobiologically, we don't have to learn it. It's there. The baby will cry out. And, and th- that's sort of a, that automatic help me, right? Now, of course, the baby learns what to expect based on the response. Yes. To that. Mm-hmm. that call and response. We hope that there's response. Mm-hmm. And that the response grows more and more attuned. Not perfect, but attuned. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's, um, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking of any clinician listening who maybe has had attachment training, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's attachment focused EMDR or um, read about attachment, you know, I, there almost needs to be like attunement EMDR <laughs> training too, because I, I'm hearing in the conversation how much they go together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I think, I think that that the way I think about EMDR is that the attachment and the attunement, certainly the attunement has to be happening in the therapy room. Because even as we're asking our clients to just notice, we are also just noticing mm. what's happening, what's happening inside us, what's happening with the client. You know, there's an element of, of you know, attuning to and riding those waves with the client, watching, kind of coming in, coming out, helping them to pendulate as they're, as they're reprocessing, helping them to, to, together with us to identify areas where we can shore up resourcing, for example. You know, where, where more, 
more and more can be, be really helpful as shock absorption, as buffer, as, as nourishment mm. for the system. Mm-hmm. So often that's, that's a, a huge part of what people need. Yes. Right? And so attunement, I think that attunement is part of it. And the attachment piece so often with clients is, is simply this, can I trust you? Mm-hmm. Can I depend on you? Will you be reliable? Will you be responsive? Will you do what you say you're going to do? This is what secure attachment is about, is that that sense that I can depend on you to do what you say you're going to do. And when you don't, you will repair. Yes. This definition, I, I want to slow this down. This definition that you just articulated is so important because I get the sense with my consultees and even going into clinical training as a learner that sometimes we confuse what you just said in terms of secure attachment with always being there, mm-hmm. right? The secure attachment that's defined by like, I'm consistently there all the time. And yeah. right. And I think <laughs> this trips up parents, but also therapists because you know, there are some therapists who are terrified to go on vacation or terrified to like go on sabbatical because they're like, I don't want to mess up this attachment with my client. And what I think about when I hear that is that oftentimes in phase two, when we're doing more creative resourcing, like bringing in a nurturing figure or protective figure, so many times those are people or figures that weren't there all the time, but there is a felt sense of that secure attachment with them. Yeah. And, and you, the, the attachment figure doesn't have to have been there all the time for there to be secure attachment. That's they right. have to do what they say they're going to do and, and generally be reliable and responsive. From a secure base, actually separation and individuation can happen. You can't have real separation and individuation when you don't have that secure base. Because what that means is I have a secure base and I wander off. And we see this with, with toddlers. We see this with, you know, 18-month-old, two-year-olds. They do this thing where they wander off, right? And then they check back. Still there? <laughs> okay. And then they, they come back, they refuel, and they go off again, right? And they do this back and forth. And then over time, they can stay away longer because what they started to do is they've been able to mentalize, right? To internalize mommy in my head. So you'll see kids as they get a little bit older, still preschool age, toddler, you know, two, three, fall down and go, you know, and they're like, <laughs> you're okay. so, so they've got the voice in their head, right? So, so that's the process. I have mommy inside me. Yeah. It doesn't mean, mean I don't need mommy outside me. We always need our attachment figures. Mm-hmm. Attachment is from the cradle to the grave. Yes. <laughs> doesn't ever go away. We always, always, always need that. And those attachments modify and they change. And certainly with parents and, and adult kids, they can sometimes shift a bit and it can be kind of jarring when, when a child becomes more of a caregiver to, to an aging or old parent and that can happen. Complicated stuff, but, the, but the, the, the secure base piece means that that there's a, I have, I have a client who will say, so the Mara voice in my head said, it's It's not just one client many many of them so the Mara in the headset or or the family member says so what did Mara say right but they've got but they've got it inside so so you go away 
So you go on a vacation. So you have a baby. So you have a little complicated with the baby because now there's competition. But that's but that happens with attachment and families too. That's right. Right. I turn around and now you've got a you've got a kid in in your lap. Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I was up here exploring and I turn around and now you well, who is that? And when are you bringing them home? <laughs> not here to their home because it's not my home. <laughs> But this, but this is this is the this is the way of it. This is yes. this is the the developmental process and the you know attachment and sharing and ooh, what happens when parents split attention and you know, this is this we 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 go through these these kinds of of bumps in our attachment and yeah. our our developmental path. And as I'm listening to you, what I'm realizing in my own learning as we're talking is the secure base gives us that flexibility when attachment relationships change. That's right. And that's with a secure base, we can be creative. We can learn, right? We can even take a step back and reflect. Mm-hmm. Even, even under pressure and crisis, that's the capacities come from, which is why with the NDR preparation, if you can install an an attachment figure, fictional, magical, historical, something like that, that that strengthens that internal sense Mm -hmm. of capacity of I'm not alone in the world, of I can lean, I can lean on someone, even if that feels right now like it's just a part of me, I also know it's connected to something bigger. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's mystical or spiritual, maybe it's a community. Right. Maybe it's a practice. Maybe it's could be could be lots of lots of things, lots of ideas and, and and certainly other people. When I know that I can that I can do that, that I can always come back and rest, I can always come back and touch base and refuel, mm-hmm. I have so much more freedom to explore. Yes. And be curious and I can be creative and I can take risks. Mm-hmm. I can't do those things. If I can't count on there being a floor under me to stand on while I'm trying new things. The analogy I often will use with students when I'm teaching child development is if a child is learning to walk, you know, you get these sort of unsteady, wobbly legs, right? And you want them to have, you know, either bare feet or shoes with grips on them and to be on something that's not sliding around. Because if, if a child is starting to walk and they're on a slippery rug and you start to pull that rug out and fall down yep. until they're really solid. Mm-hmm. So, so as that security is developing, as that capacity is developing, we need to keep it really solid. And then as once it's solid, they can maneuver. The rug slips, that's okay. They jump over it. That's a really powerful analogy. And as you are saying this, what's coming in for me is, you know, I've had multiple parents call me and they'll say to me something like this, and I'm sure people listening can relate. I have a child who has reactive attachment disorder, or I have a child who um, has this, this, and this disorder in terms of attachment. How, how do you, how do, how do we as clinicians hear that, interpret that? Like, like, what do we do with that? That that you think would kind of remedy some of the misinterpretations or misunderstandings that you're noticing in the literature? Well, okay. So, so first of all, with something like a reactive attachment 
if you're seeing those, those behavior patterns in a child and the child's behaviors are indicating that, that they're very disorganized, that they don't, that they're not really kind of able to kind of cohesively re- relate to a parent who can't sort of take in mm-hmm. nurturing it's trauma. This is early developmental trauma. Yeah. That, that's what we're looking at here. And so what I was responding to in the literature was primarily assumptions made about parents. Mm. At a time before, first of all, before you can really see much in the way of anything from the child. You know, if you've got um, a baby on an oscillating ventilator, you're you are in no way making any sort of assessment of attachment of the baby towards the parents. That's just not a thing you're doing. Not right feasible. Now. Yeah. Not feasible. You're not going to be seeing it. That doesn't mean that again, that 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 the presence of that parent isn't important to that baby because it is, because that baby is going to recognize the parent's voice, that the touch is going to be different because a parent loves that baby. Yeah. Right. So, so yes, the, the, the baby matters to the parent and the parent matters to the baby, but I'm talking about the assessment piece Mm. and the pathologizing piece that can, I think, miss the mark and not be helpful. You know, it's one thing to identify a problem that's happening where you can ultimately find kind of what, what you need to do. Like, where does this come from? What, what is this about? How can we be helpful here? You know, so, so with a, something like reactive attachment, what, what you're going to be looking for is very early trauma in the attachment relationship. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, and it could be a very, very sick baby. It could be a parent was very sick. It could be any number of things. Yeah, I, I hear those. I hear that mostly with adoption, right? When people were adopting a baby early on. And think and, about what happened before they knew, before they were in charge of taking care of their baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look at, at Baldi's research, what he found uh, very early on, and this, you know, they used to believe this is hard to imagine. Really, a hundred years ago, even wow. even less than a hundred years ago, a long time, but not that long. Mm-hmm. That so didn't matter if you separated a baby, a child from their parent, put them all in, in orphanages, like during the Blitz in World War II. Now, some of this was necessary. You know, you're saving lives, and to get kids out of there, got a lot of parents out of there in some cases too put them in the orphanages and the kids would cry and they would cry and they would cry and they'd get a little bit of touch and a little bit of care. After a while, they stopped crying. Mm. And so the caregivers and the doctors said, look at that, they're so calm. Mm. They were not calm. <laughs> they had given up. Yes. They were, and, and, and there's high arousal underneath that mm. calm surface. Yep. Right? So neglect, abandonment, unreliability, unresponsiveness, lack of attunement. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about normative. You know, I've got my hands, you know, in a diaper and another kid is calling me. We're talking about a pervasive pattern of unpredictability or parents being scared or scary. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which can be very disorganizing for kids, stuff like that. Yeah. Again, over and over again. Mm-hmm. We can repair the incidents and we're going to need to because they're going to happen. Yes, that's right. They're going to happen. 
had um, in graduate school, uh, a peer of mine, we were talking about, I'm a self-psychologist by training, and he, he was asking our, our professor um, about repair. We're talking about rupture and repair. And he said, so clinically, do we need to, and same thing goes with parents, do we need to like kind of induce rupture? And she looked at him and she's like, you're not going to need to. It's going to happen. Don't worry about it. It'll take care of itself. You don't have to worry about it. Same thing with parenting. Oh my gosh. What happened? Gosh. I, I appreciate you helping us understand what it means to have a secure base, helping us understand that we need to think about the attunement piece. And you're really helping me understand the the nuances of what's happening specifically for parents of babies like in the NICU and just um what what do we do with that information? I mean, like as clinicians, how can how can we be responsive? to that trauma that those parents are going through. Yeah, there's there's so much. I mean, and it's why Debbie and I did the research that we did and wrote the books that we did maybe 20, God, 20 years ago. First book came out in 2003. Yeah, it's been that long. Yeah, after about seven, eight years of research. So, you know, read about it, talk about it, listen to parents, parents who've been through the NICU. This is why Debbie and I are doing this course. We thought about doing a revised edition of our book and then we're like, why don't we just do a workshop instead? I think yes, people that. love being with you talking about attachment, right? <laughs> well, they meet Debbie. Oh my God, Debbie is amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and it's a truly, truly, and she's a writer. And so she's primarily kind of in her, you know, in her attic. And so getting her out to talk to people is magical. Wow. So it's fantastic. So what, what we're planning to do really is to, first of all, to, to make sure that everybody who's attending understands like, well, what is it that happens in the NICU? What mm-hmm. are the range of the kinds of things that can happen? And what are the things that, that people have in common? It's not about the medical stuff. It's about the similar emotional dynamics and emotional threads. If you look at our books, you'll see that very rarely are medical details shared because they don't need to be. You might be curious about them, but really the, the emotional themes are, are pretty universal. Wow. Um, across a lot of different kinds of medical situations. So we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about frameworks to help you understand what is happening to families, mm. how to understand the grieving in, in a very particular way, how to understand how trauma manifests, what's traumatizing, yeah. how do we treat it, um, how do we treat it with EMDR, um, how do we treat it with other allied methods that I would consider a lot of them to be preparation or resourcing, but there, you know, there are other Mm-hmm. trauma-focused methods that are really powerful as well. And, and also there's, you know, I see this all as primary prevention. You know, if we do yes. this work with parents, we can first of all catch kind of their own attachment wounds and, and hopefully get them some care and some treatment, which is then going to impact how they parent their babies. But even if they don't come into it with attachment wounds, the, the experience of having a baby very early or very sick is devastating. It's terrifying. It's it's like it's like having a bomb go off in the family. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, I I am so grateful that you and Debbie really have dedicated just such a huge portion of your career to studying this, writing about this, and really, it sounds like this training that you're doing um, in August. It sounds like a really beautiful synthesis mm-hmm. of what you have been learning and also 
it sounds like there's some really practical pieces for us as clinicians. Because I, I think what is hard for me as a clinician is that someone talks about theory or research and I can understand it. But then it's like, well, what do I do with that? How do I help? <laughs> so let me leave you with, with, with a thought, with one idea, for example. Listen for cohesion mm. underneath the chaos mm. of what parents are presenting when there's been a crisis, a perinatal crisis. So listen for what, the bonding, the the connection to the baby. So when parents tell me, for example, that they're worrying and they're calling the the hospital all the time, and the nurses are worried that that some you know that they're they have an anxious attachment. So being anxious about your baby doesn't mean you have an anxious attachment. Yes. Anxious about your very sick baby means you have protective urges and a normal response to what's happening. A normal response, right? If you're afraid to touch your very fragile baby because you're afraid you're going to hurt them, that's a protective urge. So listen for, listen for that, even if it sounds very small. Yeah. Name it, catch it, name it, firm it, tap it in. Mm. So parents, it feels different. What attachment and the, and I'm going to use the word attachment because we use it colloquially, but the bonding function looks like, right? A parent to child mm. is going to look different in a NICU, then it's going to look in, in a full, full, with a full-term baby. Yes. Mm-hmm. The baby is different, a different kind of parent, different kind of baby. Mm-hmm. So we have to learn the language, but we can listen for protective urges. We can listen for love. We can listen for longing. We can listen for those, those sorts of really understandable experiences and name them and shape them and say that's real and that matters. And of course you're feeling that. And, and that's protective. Most parents don't have to feel that yep. in the first weeks or months after their baby is born. They might feel protective like, no, you can't hold them for the 400th time, you know, sister-in-law or whoever. Yeah. But it's different. It's different. No, you really do need to wash your hands before you come in here speaking of COVID and risk. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you really do need to wear a mask. I'm well I'm I'm so grateful that that you and Debbie are really from my opinion kind of leading leading us through figuring this out together I I love that you know so much and come into this also with a with a learner's mind and curiosity Um, and I love your courage and voice to challenge some misinterpretations in the literature that can really help support parents in a better way and I think after you know now our second conversation together I'm already understanding that what we're talking about is such a, it's so big, right? I mean, it has so many applications. Like you said, it's so foundational to so many things in terms of, like you said, catching parents, attachment wounding early if, if there's any there. And and you have some things going on that you're planning beyond the training. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you have cooking? I do, I do. Yeah, thanks for asking, Kendra. So t- the Touchstone Institute, um, we are building out our trainings so that we are we are wanting to be one of the places that clinicians can come to for high quality trauma focused trainings around perinatal and parenting topics wow. so that we're we will be having some for example bipoc specific trainings around the perinatal period um Topics around infertility, around working with couples. Again, all with that trauma-focused lens and the perinatal lens. 
And not all taught by me, not all taught by me and Debbie. I know some things and I learn more things, but there are some, you know, some tremendously experienced, knowledgeable uh, clinicians and trainers out there yes. who are to my just amazement and, and thrilled are wanting to train with us um, using this platform that we're building out. So we're going to be launching a new website next month. We're also, as part of this, so this is something that I tried to do this myself using kind of available online tools. I've been trying to build a database for probably two and a half years of, of trauma-focused perinatal therapists and people that the Touchstone Institute has trained using sort of that combination model. And every time I tried to build a database, it broke because I wanted it to be updatable. I wanted it. And I was trying this, you know, this way of doing it myself. Well, I am not a coder. I'm not a programmer. I'm pretty genius, Ma. That's okay. Oh, just not a thing. (laughs) So that's going to be something we're actually going to have as part of the new website. It's going to be an opt-in database for anybody who's trained with Touchstone. So that, because we get asked for referrals all the time. You know, somebody in directory then for people who are therapists. This is amazing. Yeah. So it's, it's really going to be all across North America and then, and then worldwide, anybody who's consulted with us, anybody who's trained with us. So somebody's like, do you know somebody in New Hampshire? Go to the web. Yes, I do. And, and you can say that you, you know, they're trustworthy and legit because they've been through our program and which programs they've come through. And, you know, then it gives, it gives you some sense of them. And, you know, we've got all kinds. We've got a podcast, you know, hopefully within the next year. We've I can't it. wait to hear your podcast. I'm oh, yeah. thrilled. I'm thrilled oh, yeah. that you're yes. going to give energy to that. Yes. Lots of things wanting to give, you know, to offer resources to the community that are, that are just easily accessible. There's just lot, lots of cool things. And I'll, I'll tell you more as, as they develop. So thank you for asking. Oh my gosh. Well, you're always welcome to come back and, and hang out here with us. And obviously if there's big updates, we'd, we'd love to hear and, and share those with people. Really just have so much appreciation for what you're doing, for what Debbie's doing and and, and really your whole t- staff, faculty and team uh, at Touchstone has such an important mission. And I hope people listening or watching this understand that we're talking about you know perinatal, but as you've been teaching me, this this really does span and, and apply to so many other pieces, right? It, it does. If you think about it, you know, it starts with with birth, pregnancy and birth and early childhood. And that's where our templates get laid down about everything. Mm. Wow. So it isn't surprising that these themes that we're talking about now in this period are applicable yep. uh, as we go forward. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. We'd love to have you back on. um, And we'll put all of your information about the training and Touchstone uh, below in the show notes for folks to get in touch with you. Thank you so much. Always. Yes, it is. It is so much fun. Thank you. I want to again thank Dr. Mara Tesler-Stein, who joined us today to help us understand how to differentiate and distinguish between so many nuances of attachment and bonding and attunement. And um, this is really just the tip of the iceberg in the conversation. My hope is that it's got you thinking and questioning what you know and helping you reevaluate 
what is still left to learn when being in service to your clients. So all of Mara's information is going to be posted in the show notes below, as well as information about the Touchstone Institute and any trainings that she is putting together uh, to help us learn more about how attachment forms between caregivers and, and children in the earliest, earliest stages of life. So with all that being said, thank you for hanging out with us today. It is so much fun to talk about what we don't know and figure out what we do know so that we can feel like learning is enjoyable. And it is such a pleasure to have guests on the podcast who make it fun. So thanks, Tamara. And uh, until next time, y'all, I am sending you love. I am sending you kindness. And I look forward to being with you real soon. I'm rooting for your success. In the meantime, take care.